Is, is it great to worship? Yeah, I can see there's a lot of nodding, but you're a bit timid tonight. Um, turn to the person next to you and say, it's more than singing. It's more than singing. For the hard of hearing on the front row. Do you, know what? Do you know what? I love to worship. It's not what I'm talking about tonight. I love to worship. And there's that idea that when we worship God and we put him first, then um, everything else kind of seems to get out of the way. And it's amazing. We can connect with him. He connects with our heart and that kind of thing. But what I'm talking about um, tonight, the other morning, uh, I talked a little bit about um, the way that we see ourselves and that kind of thing. And it, it almost kind of follows on in a little roundabout way and kind of follows on from what Haley talked about uh, last Sunday night. She was talking about um, David and Goliath and kind of that new perspective that he had to get on, on Goliath and who he was. And I talked a little bit um, last week about the fact that we try and put filters over everything to try and like, make ourselves look really good. And uh, I talked a bit about Snapchat filters uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I know some of you are like never without ears in a photo that you take of yourself. Um, I am not um, a massively good photographer. I, I love images. I love photography. I love kind of checking it out. And um, uh, my brother-in-law, Tim, who was here this morning, and he's probably still running late for tonight. And that's a, that's a, that's a trait within their family. They're what? They're packing. Yeah. They're running late. They'll still be packing when we get home from church tonight. But um, Tim is actually, you know, it's probably a good idea he's not here because like, I don't want to like big him up and make his head too big. But, but Tim is an incredible um, photographer. He used to work uh, for like the best photography magazine in the UK as their features editor. Uh, it's, it's the best photography magazine, but it's called Amateur Photographer, okay, which is a bit misleading. Uh, it is like the top uh, photographic publication in the UK. He used to work for them. He used to do loads of camera reviews for people like Nikon and Olympus and, and Canon. And he's taken some incredible photos. Uh, they've been out in Kenya on mission uh, for about 18 months. And they're, they're going back there later this year. He asked me if we could move Refresh forward a month so we could come before they had to go back out. But he takes some incredible, incredible images. Okay, photography is something that most people in my extended family are interested in in some way or another. Uh, my mom, in the fact that um, for some reason she can only, she, like her arms are like the original like version of a selfie stick because I've never seen her take a photograph like where the camera is anywhere close to her face when she's looking through the viewfinder. She holds it at arm's length like this as if she can't see. It's something to do with her long-sightedness. She says it's to do with her degree. It's not to do with her degree because they hadn't invented like screens on your cameras when she was at university. But anyway, um, other people in my family are not so successful uh, at photography. Um, Ruth's dad, again, he was here this morning. Doug, he was the, the big kind of like posh looking fellow with the, the shock of grey hair. Um, looks a little bit kind of like a, 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 an older James Bond. They do call him Double O Doug sometimes. Steve calls him the Silver Fox. Um, he has got a, a real knack of being able to take really, really bad home videos. Okay, uh, they came back once from, um, they'd been out to Victoria Falls, uh, and uh, it was really wonderful scenery. The only problem is, for the entirety of the trip, Doug had held the video camera upside down. So when he showed us on the TV, we kind of had to look at it like this. Um, other things, he goes on ski trips. He doesn't understand, I don't think, that if he presses the record button again, he can just stop it and record again where there's some 
something interesting. So every time he goes skiing and takes a camcorder, we have about 30 minutes footage of his right thigh and some snow as it just gracefully glides down the slopes. Now, all this is, is, is okay, and this is just kind of poor videography. He took it a step further one Christmas. We went up um, to his house, uh, uh, and he used to live up in the Lake District uh, after Christmas, and we'd spent the Christmas down here, and he got all the family together, and we said, how was your Christmas? He said, would you like to see how our Christmas was? We didn't say, he said, would you like to see how our Christmas was? Because he speaks a bit like this. Uh, he said, uh, Fiona, Fiona, go and get the camcorder, and they plugged it into the TV, and uh, Fiona came round, and uh, you saw this view, and it was Christmas morning, they got up, they were having breakfast together, and uh, She's talking to Douglas, uh, and uh, what are you cooking for us, Douglas? And he's uh, cooking breakfast like this at the cooker, and it's all very fine, and he's wearing a nice fleece top and things like this, and you can see they're having cooked breakfast. And then as she pans round to see the beautiful uh, view out of the window over the lake, she pans round as far as a very large mirror on one side of their kitchen, and in all its glory is Ruth's dad's buttocks, his legs, and his brogues on the bottom and he was wearing nothing but brogues and a fleece. Some photographs, mirrors can be a hazard. I'm sure you have seen some selfies, uh, some pictures, uh, which are not great. Now, we've got some selfies. Melody's going to put them up there in a list, in an order. This first one, this woman captured the perfect moment on her paragliding flight. Just as she vomits. Important thing... He still managed to hold on to the selfie stick and keep it focused. Okay, so there's a lovely vomit um, selfie. I don't think she uh, will be that pleased that that's all over the internet. Okay, there's then the kind of confused person. Okay, the whole point of a selfie stick here, yeah, if you've used one, is so that you can get more reach to use the, uh, the self-facing camera. This next guy is a bit confused. He uses a selfie stick to take a selfie in the mirror. He obviously spent too much time working out, not enough time doing his homework. Um, then um, there's the overcomplicated selfie. Okay, sometimes we manage to get like a couple of reflections of people. This guy takes it to a whole new level. Melody, let's get the next one. There we go. So he's got a photo of his phone taking a photo of his, no, his iPad taking, oh, I don't know what he's doing, but he's got his laptop, his iPad and his phone and a mirror. You know, that is a little bit... Uh, over complicated. Then you get the kind of people that cheat with selfies. And the next one, it's kind of compressed it down a little bit. Uh, there's this lovely selfie of this guy in Dubai, but he's not in Dubai. He's just in front of his flat screen TV with a picture of Dubai, uh, and he's taking the photo himself. My other bugbear. This is my biggest bugbear with selfies apart from the one eye selfie. Okay. Hang your head in shame if you take the one eye selfie. Right. Okay. But my biggest issue is the people that take so much time to get ready. They do their makeup. They do their hair. They get their perfect outfit. They take a selfie in a room that looks like this. Okay? Either, you'd be like, just pick up the clothes, find somewhere where it's not messy, you've made such an effort with yourself, make a bit of an effort with your room, or, you know, just at least like that other guy, get a fake background and make it look good. But you know what? Sometimes, um, selfies um, and that mess that surrounds, we wish that in life, 
our picture of ourselves, kind of what's in the background, the things that surround us, the things that are packaged up and bundled up with our lives. We kind of wish they'd go into soft focus and kind of like blurred out so that we don't uh, really see um, what is around us. That we, you know, sometimes we feel like the, the selfie that we want to take of our life, we want to pick a really nice backdrop. We want to pick the best possible surroundings for ourselves so we look like we've got it all together. Melody, uh, I didn't ask you before, mainly because you disappeared, uh, but uh, I need one verse up uh, today. It's Psalm 51, 10. And I will start to tell embarrassing stories about you until Psalm 51, 10 appears on the screen. So this week has been Melody's birthday and there's been a lot of firsts for Melody. And um, what? How long is it taking you to get Psalm 51.10 on the screen, Melody? So anyway, if you're interested this week, um, oh, there we go. Anyway, I wouldn't have done really. I might have done. Um, right, anyway, so Psalm 51.10. David, Okay, the guy that we all know from uh, the David and Goliath story, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. We were talking about him last week. And in Psalm 51, okay, there's it's incredible kind of prayer um, that he's praying. But I want to just look at this one verse. Okay, Psalm 51.10. David says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Okay, so create in me a new heart. David's just pleading with God. And I think I've always kind of looked at this and I've kind of glossed over something that kind of hit me in the face earlier when I was rereading it. And he doesn't say, um, clean up my heart so it's pure. He doesn't say, take my heart and take all the mess out of it. He doesn't say, you know, just get in there with um, the cleaning wipes and sort it out. He actually says, create in me a new heart. He's not talking bypass surgery for his heart. He's talking about a heart transplant. He's talking about the fact that his heart is not up to the job. He asks God to create in him a pure heart, to make a new one. You see, David's heart, I don't know exactly when David wrote these words, uh, and we're, we're not sure on that, but David's heart went through a lot. There were massive amounts of things that happened. We have these amazing stories of him being anointed as a child to be the future king of Israel, and then he goes off and he goes back into the fields and he, he looks after his sheep and like um, he nonchalantly goes around like like killing bears and lions and stuff that are attacking his sheep, and then like um, he ends up down on the battlefield like Haley told us last week, and he he steps up and he's like the hero uh, of his people and he takes down this massive nine foot giant Goliath and he's just like the hero of the moment. He goes on to be, to be king. And, and you might think that David's got it all together. He's described in the Bible. He's pretty much the only person uh, with an epitaph that says, that says he was a man after God's own heart. Okay, God calls David a man after his own heart. And we might think that David had got it all together. But do you know what? I'm really glad that when we read the Bible, when we read the account of David's lives, then his mistakes are on display for everybody to see. 
You know, David did some amazing things, but David did some pretty stupid things, some pretty selfish things, some pretty downright wrong things. He was a, an adulterer. He seduced this woman, and then because she'd got a husband, he, he basically killed him by ordering him out to the front line in a place where he knew he was going to get killed. He did some great things. He did some stupid things. You know, he, he would stay at home at times and stay out of the battle. Instead of being that leader that was out there leading by example, he sent people to do his dirty work. And he was keeping his hands clean. He was keeping out the way of it all. He had problems. And when we see this, when we see all these mistakes and we see this display of David's life, do you know what? It, 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 it makes me recognize that, that this cry of creating me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me is authentic. This is not the kind of pompous prayer of some whiter-than-white um, kind of goody-two-shoes kind of guy who's just saying, look at me, uh, I'm so good, but I'm actually going to ask God, I'm going to tell God that, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble, my heart's not right. I need some loyalty, you know, I, I need to be steadfast. I need this spirit within me that's going to keep me on the right path when he doesn't really need it. This is a guy who needs this prayer. This is a genuine, God, I'm in a mess. I need you to do something about it. And do you know what? I think I connect with David because I live a life where it's not always perfect and I don't always make the right decisions and I mess up and I try to lead this church as, as best as I can but it doesn't always go exactly the way that I, I, I envisage things going or, or mistakes happen and situations come along and they kind of knock us off our feet and you know I've, I've laughed and cried over the last 12 months uh, about experiences in church but I can identify with David, that there's this man with great intentions who makes massive mistakes. And it encourages me that, that our faith, it encourages me that, that the way that we try to live is something that actually we can attain to. Because David, in the midst of all these mistakes, asks God for forgiveness. And now we're not saying that basically just go off and do whatever you like and God will forgive you. We're not saying that kind of God just ignores all David's faults. But David has this heart of hope and this understanding that, that God is his saviour, even when he messes up. And I can identify with that. And I think at times we all identify with that. Do you know what? In the midst of all the, the mess we get these incredible prayers and these incredible kind of, some of them are like songs of worship in the Psalms that David writes. And we get some incredible moments of wisdom and incredible moments of restraint. And actually, Melody, if you could get up for me, um, 2 Samuel 16, verse 5 to 13, while I tell everybody else what happened this, no, I'm not going to do it. Right, okay, so... Uh, David, in 2 Samuel 16, 5 to 13. You looked at me like really confused then. 2 Samuel 16, 5 to 13. Go. 
Yay, there we go. Okay. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. Next slide, Melody. He pelted David. I love that word, pelted. Okay, he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Not let me go over and tell him off a little bit. Let me go over and remove his head. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. Do you know what? He's he's there. This guy kind of comes out of nowhere. And David, the king, the most important in the nation, this, this great ruler, he's there and he's got all his his guard around him on the left and the right, and this guy comes up, and I, you know, imagine if this kind of happened now, um, and he starts throwing dirt and stones at David. He's persistent, he goes up and he does it. He's causing a massive fuss, you know, all these stones raining off people and this dirt. And um, David just has this restraint in the situation, and he basically says, leave him alone. He says, leave him alone. Maybe God's telling him to curse me. And maybe, maybe God will bless me for putting up with it. Do you know what? Something we can learn from David. What wisdom is that? You know, when things come against us, Ruth talked this morning, she mentioned that verse, that consider it pure joy when all kinds of adversity comes against you. David's basically saying, you know, this guy's chucking stuff at me. I'm important. I could have his head chopped off. I'm just going to let the dirt hit me. I'm going to let the stones hit me. You know what? I don't know, but if God's told him to do it, you know, maybe God will bless me for putting up with this rubbish. Do you know what? I don't know if I'd react like that in that kind of situation. If I'd got the kind of power and this guy's saying, I'll just go and deal with him for you. I'd probably send the guy to go and deal with him. I love this. He, he kind of ignores it. And then if you go further on in the passage, it says that like, he basically got to where he was going and he refreshed himself. So he puts up with all this and then he just waits till he gets home and has a bath. All right, gets rid of all the dirt. There you go. Um, so there's this idea that we need our hearts replaced. If we can have that original verse back up again, Melody, from Psalms, that would be great. The one from Psalms. 5110. There you go. I do not have it now. Okay, anyway, so he says about this create a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart, oh God. 
we need if we want to follow Jesus, if we want this life that he's promising, this life that's full, more abundant uh, than we can ever ask or imagine, then we need to ask God to create a pure heart in us, to do that heart replacement surgery on us, to change the way that we think and we respond in situations. And a lot of us have been at that place and we've been on our knees and we've kind of prayed this prayer. And then David goes on and he says, I want this new heart. I want this new heart that's pure, that's of you. He says, and then put, put back a steadfast spirit in me. A steadfast just means that it's, that it's constant. Okay, it's reliable. So I want this new heart, God, and then I, I, I want to be reliable. I want this reliable spirit so I don't mess it up again. So I don't stick all that rubbish back in. I want to be loyal. I want you to keep me on course. Do you know, I, I seem to be kind of like coming up with stories about all my family members who were here this morning, who aren't here this evening, but I would tell them if they were. Um, Ruth's sister, Hannah, uh, we call her Og. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why, that's just what she gets called. Um, I remember when she was uh, probably about um, 18, uh, we were on a, we'd been on uh, a sailing boat, we'd been over the English Channel, we'd been to Cherbourg in France, uh, and we were heading back across the Channel at night, and uh, I was up on deck, uh, a very, very inexperienced sailor at that point. Now I'm just a very inexperienced sailor rather than a very, very inexperienced sailor. Um, and um, Hannah and her friend, who was also called Hannah, which was confusing, um, were both on the helm. Okay, the helm is a fancy yachting term for a steering wheel. Okay, it's massive, it is huge. Everybody else who knew what they were doing uh, was down below uh, in the boat, uh, eating, making a cup of tea, that kind of thing. We'd been given a bearing on the compass that told us where we needed to go to get back into the port we needed to get to, to get back to um, cows on the Isle of Wight. And... Um, the skipper, Tony, was down below in the boat. And now it's as if, like, Tony has some kind of symbiotic relationship uh, with, with vessels that go on water. And he can tell if he's asleep if you have gone off course. All right, okay, it seems that way. Tony comes up, and his head peers up into the gloom from down in the cabin, and he, he calls up and he says, um, have we changed course? And uh, Hannah's like, no. <laughs> as she moves the steering wheel, the, the helm. And um, she says, no, 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 we've been going in a perfectly straight line. And he, and he goes down, and uh, a couple of minutes later, he says, you've changed course again. He says, yeah, you're just weaving your way. Uh, it's going to take us ages if you keep going off course. Uh, he says, every, every uh, degree of the compass uh, you are out now on your course is going to be a mile further uh, when we get back to the other side of the English Channel. Uh, Hannah is insisting that she has gone in a dead straight line for the past half an hour she's been helming. Unfortunately for Hannah, there was a kind of phosphorescent, okay, that means glow-in-the-dark algae in the English Channel at that point, that when it got agitated by water, kind of sparkled a bit like fireflies, like something off a Disney film. The boat had agitated this sparkling algae, and as you looked at the back of the boat, a trail like this kind of went uh, behind the boat back into the darkness of the English Channel. And she kept going off course. 
And we realized that the reason she was doing it was because she wasn't actually looking at where she was going, but she was completely focused on this compass. So instead of being able to make tiny little adjustments that you need to make when you're, you know, you know helming a boat is not like driving a car. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of like, it would be like driving a car if the road did this, okay, all the time and moved, right? You make tiny, tiny little adjustments to try and keep all the time where you're going. But if you just stare down at the compass and it comes round and you keep trying to adjust to that, you end up weaving all over the place. You know, it's a little bit like our life. And really often we'll wait until we feel like we're going off course to try and make some kind of big adjustment in life. We want this steadfast spirit. We want to keep going. We want to keep up with what God's called us to. And, uh, and we drift off and we drift off. And we realize we're pointing in the wrong direction. So we kind of heave the wheel over and, and come back a little bit. You know, just like sailing. The big adjustments, they're not going to do us any good. We need to be making these constant little adjustments if we want to be steadfast with God, if we want to be following him. And then we actually need to fix our eyes on a destination. Okay, we went sailing with some of the youth from church like when me and Ruth were like, just first married. Um, so like, we were in our early 20s and we, we took some of like, our friends and, and some of the younger ones and like, people like Chris and Kev um, were like, in the youth and they came along. And there was a girl uh, called Lara uh, and the skipper told her, uh, while we're going out, I want you to um, see that boy over there. Okay, so it was a massive big metal cardinal marker. It was like uh, a massive yellow thing with a light on. He says, I want you to aim for that. Okay, tell me when we're nearly there. All right. Um, she's aiming for it. She's aiming for it. She's aiming for it. And then she calls Tony and says, we're nearly there, at which point Tony has to come out and make some kind of dramatic course thing because she is literally aiming directly at this huge metal boy and thought she was going to just ram straight into it. All right. But she had to, she, the reason she got to it was because she'd fixed her eyes on it and she just looked at nothing else but where she'd got to go. And she kept making tiny adjustments to get where she'd got to go. If our destination is Jesus, then we need to fix our eyes on him. We need to be looking in his word. We need to be seeing what he's about. If our destination is God, we've got to be seeing him. We've got to be looking for him in everything. And we've got to be staying straight on course. Do you know what? David's was a, a life of adjustments. You know, he made some pretty big messes and he was guilty of not making those little adjustments all the way through. But there's something that recurs through David's life that seems to, to give him this ability to, to bounce back and to get focused back on God and who he is. And it's that he spent time alone. Okay, the Bible often refers to it as like this secret place. He spent time alone in this secret place with God. So all that time when he was a kid, and he was a shepherd, and he was out there on his own looking after um, the family sheep. And he's out there with nobody to talk to. You know, I reckon that's pretty much where some of these psalms come from and these songs. It's that he got alone with God, and he talked to God, and he praised him, and he worshipped him, and he, he looked at who he was. And that time that he spent, and that time that he went back to, to get alone with God, to get some time to just focus in on him, to pray 
to worship. That served him incredibly, incredibly well. It's one little verse. Creating me a pure heart. And restore a steadfast spirit in me. But you know what? We can learn so much from these little things. God tonight wants to to say to you, you know, whether you're kind of in a place where you're bringing things back on course, whether you're you're dead on course, or whether you're kind of veering off a little bit, God wants to say to you tonight, fix your eyes on me. Look at me, I'm here. Come to me. And you know what? David messed up so much. So there's never anything that is too messed up that God can't get us back right with him. It just takes us to say, God, I want that new heart. And God, help me to be steadfast. Help me to be loyal. Help me to be steady. We're going to pray. And then we're just going to have a little bit of worship time uh, and close. But let's just kind of, if you want to just close your eyes, not because... Anything magic happens when you close your eyes and pray, but just because it helps us to be kind of like in that secret place, to kind of block out what's going on around us, to not worry about what other people are saying. Let's just speak to God now. Lord God, I just want to thank you um, for the life of David. Lord God, I want to thank you that uh, it's not just the good bits that are presented in your word, God, but it's a, a kind of full picture of all the ups and downs. The, the massive highs and the massive lows. God, but the, the end of it is that you called him a man after your own heart. And God, um, we just want to be people that, that are described as being men and women that, that are after your heart. We've got people whose hearts are lined up with you. So, so God, tonight we just ask that you might create a new heart in us. Maybe we, we, we felt close to you and now, now we feel a little bit further away and maybe we're just on a journey, we're coming towards you. But tonight, God, I just pray for a revelation of who you are. God, the, you, your word does say that when we seek you, we will find you. So God, I pray for that new heart for us individually, for us as a church, this heart of purity that's lined up with you. And God, I pray for a steadfast spirit. Lord God, that you might put something in us that is tenacious. Lord God, you might put something in us that is, is stubbornly about keeping our eyes focused on you. Because God, when we, we see when David was on course, we see how he changed the world. God, we see that when he was on course and he was listening to you and he was in that secret place with you, God, he birthed generations of worship through the Psalms.